0: Listening To the Venue Podcast. The Venue is a worship gathering at South Crest Baptist Church. We hope that this podcast helps you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus. Hey, if you have your Bible, turn to 2 Timothy. Chapter 3. Let me tell you what we're going to be doing today. Again, 2 Timothy chapter 3. So, we've been in this series going verse by verse through the book of 2 Timothy, through this letter from Paul to Timothy. And today we're kind of circling back. So, last week we went uh, verses 10 through 17 in chapter 3. And today we're circling back and kind of using verses 16 and 17 as a jumping off point for what we're going to call more of a topical sermon. So, normally at Southcrest, our bread and butter. Is going verse by verse through Scripture, but today, uh, Pastor David and I wanted to circle back and look at just the idea of the subject, I should say, of God's Word. And really, here's how we're going to approach it: we're going to have two big sections. It probably is reflected; should be reflected on your notes if you got that handout. But two big sections. One of them being around the idea, the question of why should we trust the Bible? Because here's the reality: you can trust the Bible. You can. You can trust it. It is God's Word. So we're going to look at just a little bit of evidence for that. And then the second part, we're going to look at just this idea of of things to know as you're reading the Bible. And I want to say this, or hear me say this. We are barely, just barely dipping our toe in the water into these subjects this morning. There are numerous, massive books written on these ideas. And so uh, if this piques your interest, and I hope it does, you should do further research because, again, we're just barely skimming the surface. This is not even a 30,000-foot flyover, just barely looking at it. And so uh, I'm excited about it, but I want you know this is kind of an introduction to these ideas. And just as um, a little bit of evidence towards the fact that even the Bible sees itself as God's Word, I want you to look at a few passages with me. The first one being here in 2 Timothy 3. And let me say this, you're gonna see a lot of verses this morning. I should have all of them on the screen. My my, uh, encouragement, my advice to you would be rather than trying to flip and find every single one of them, maybe just to write the reference down and read it on the screen so you can go back later. Okay, chapter three, verse 16 says, all scripture is inspired by God. It's God-breathed. And is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So there it is right there. We saw this last week. It's from God. It's God breathed. It's literally from the mouth of God. So the Bible is not just ink on pages. It is breath on pages. Now, another verse, we're going to have this on the screen. This is from 2 Peter chapter three, verses 15 through 16, Second Peter 3, 15 through 16. He says, also regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. He speaks about these things in all his letters. Now, I love this. There are some things hard to understand in them. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Peter says, man, sometimes Paul, what is he talking about? The untaught and unstable will twist them, Paul's letters, to their own destruction, as they also do with the rest of the Scriptures. So I should have had this done on the screen. Like, if I could, I would bold with the rest of the Scriptures. Did you, do you see, do you catch what Peter just did there? He's saying, he's referring to Paul's letters as what? Scripture. There you go, Sarah. Thank you. I got somebody tracking with me. Scripture. So even as the, the New Testament is still being written, already God's people are recognizing Paul's letters as Scripture, okay? Another one, 1 Timothy 5, 18. If you want to write it down again, 1 Timothy 5, verse 18. For the Scripture says, "'Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, "'and the worker is worthy of his wages.'" That last part, the worker is worthy of his wages, is actually a quote of Jesus that we find in Luke, I believe, chapter seven off the top of my head. Um, He's quoting Jesus as written down in Luke and saying it is scripture. So again, even as the New Testament is still being written, God's people are already recognizing the Gospels as scripture, as God's authoritative word. It is God's inspired word. Now, we say that word a lot. What do we mean by inspired? Like this morning, I was driving in and the sunrise was inspiring. Like I felt motivated. I felt excited. It's going to be a beautiful day. Maybe you watch uh, Patrick Mahomes in the Super Bowl. They went to the Super Bowl this year, right? Yeah, they won it. That's right. So you watch watch Patrick Mahomes playing on that gimpy leg and his performance is inspiring, right? So all the little guys like, I'm going to play football when I grow up, right? It was motivating. It was inspiring. That's not the kind of inspiring that we're talking about with the Bible. No, it's that The writers were carried along by God's spirit as they wrote, as they wrote the scriptures, so much so that every word was given to them by God and nothing they wrote was not from God. Every single thing in the Bible is from God. The the specific words that were chosen are from God. So when you read the Bible, you read the words of God. Now, did you catch that though? God inspired, spoke to the human writers to give us scripture. So maybe I could, seriously, I'm not trying to be silly, though it is a little bit silly. Um, Something that may be a new thought to you. Like, I think when I was a kid, like, I don't know when this stopped, um, but I think when I was a kid, I just kind of assumed that the Bible just fell out of heaven, and landed on the shelves at Mardell and Amazon Prime, right? Like it just kind of fell from heaven, but that's, that's not what happened. It didn't just fall out of the sky and hit people on the head. No, it, God inspired the biblical authors and then they wrote down the original manuscripts and then over time it was copied over and over and over again until we finally got the printing press and then here we have it in our hands today. So if it was inspired by God and then uh, copied Generation after generation, how, how can we know that's trustworthy? I think that's a natural human reaction, but wait, if it didn't just drop out of the sky and humans were involved, how can we know that it's uh, authoritative, that it's reliable? To to peak, or to, uh, push that question a little bit, I love, uh, one of my friends here on staff showed me that our KDO program put, here at church put together a spring, I think it was a spring, a spring Cookbook, and on the front it says inspired by our moms. And so, in, the, in this KDO cookbook, it's uh, this particular one I looked at. It was a group of five year olds, and they were telling their teachers, they were writing down recipes inspired by their moms. And let me just share a few of those recipes, two of those recipes with you. So, the first <laughs> was a recipe for nachos. And here are the ingredients two ingredients. Four nachos, the ingredients are beans, cheese. (laughs) Instructions, put the beans and cheese together. Number two, cook them in the microwave. Number three, eat with no chips. (laughs) Number four, sometimes you can eat with chips. (laughs) That was so good. Here's another one of a five-year-old boys sharing his mom's spaghetti recipe. Spaghetti recipe. Ingredients, number one, cottage cheese. (laughs) Ooh. Number two, noodles. Number three, sauce. Number four, meatballs. He got better as he went. Instructions. Number one, leave it in a pot. Number two, go watch TV. (laughs) Number three, eat it with an exclamation point. (laughs) So here None of us read that. I hear that and think, those moms are terrible cooks. No, we realize somewhere in translation, somewhere in it getting passed down, something got messed up. It's the natural human response, skepticism to think about the Bible and go, oh man, like somewhere did, did, did humans mishear God? Did we, did we copy something wrong? What, what happened? I wanna again assure you today You can trust the Bible, that it is God's word, that is without error, that is holy word. So three things I want to give you related to that. Number one, you can trust the Bible because of the way it was formed. You can trust the Bible because of the way it Was formed. And specifically, what I'm referring to here is the unified message. So think about, I'm going to read this to you, think about or share this with you. Think about how many variables were in play when the Bible was written, and yet there is one unified ethic, and more importantly, there is one unified method, excuse me, message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible in two words, the the whole Old and New Testament, two words, Jesus saves. Amen. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the hope of the Bible. So let me give you these variables. 66 books, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament, written in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and a little bit of Aramaic, written on three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe, over about a 1,600-year period. That's a long time. Some of it written in tents, deserts, palaces, cities, dungeons. Some of the authors included judges, kings, priests, prophets, herdsmen, scribes, soldiers, physician, physicians, and fishermen. And yet, there is one overriding message that points us to the hope that Jesus saves. Friends, only God could take that many years, that many authors, that many cultures and produce one single message. Even in the crazy world that it was formed, it is clear that our hope is found in Jesus Christ. Now, another thing about the way it was formed So we just looked at the unity of the message. Second thing, let's talk about the manuscript. So remember I said a second ago, the original authors, as God inspired them, they wrote down the words, the words that God told them to write down. Even though their own vocabulary and personality shines through, God gave them the words to speak, to write, excuse me. And then over time, it was copied on papyrus or animal skin and passed down from generation to generation, So again, the question is, well, are those copies of the original, are they accurate? Y'all tracking with that question? Makes sense? Like, that's a fair question. Are the copies that we have that go back, go back, go back, go back further and further, do they match up with the original? Let me share an example to you from, uh, related to the Old Testament. So until 1946, the oldest copies, uh, compilation of the Old Testament text that we had dated back to AD 1008. So this is the Masoretic text. Uh, and so up until 1946, all we had was this compilation of texts that went back to 1000, excuse me, 1008 AD. So you could argue, man, that's, that's a long time from the originals, right? If you think about, so BC, the Old Testament written before Christ and the copies we have were 1008 AD. Man, that's a lot of time for things to get messed up. What's interesting, in 1946, in Qumran, in Israel, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Raise your hand if you've heard of this. No judgment if you haven't. I'm just curious. Awesome. Okay. They found the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1946. And those Dead Sea Scrolls date back to 250 B.C. So think about that. Over a thousand years difference between the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Masoretic Text, right? So automatically, scholars are going, especially skeptics, oh man, there's gonna be some differences a thousand years apart. Surely there's all kinds of errors. Surely it's been changed and manipulated over the years. And here is what textual critics have found. So textual critics, people that look at the Old Testament text in the Hebrew and, and compare them. And this is not just Christian Textual critics is also secular, but people who don't believe in Jesus is a better way to describe it. People who don't believe in Christ, what they've found between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Masoretic Text, that these two texts, even with over a thousand years between them, have 95% word for word agreement. That should blow your mind. And of the 5% variances, they're almost all spelling differences or maybe word order change. That is phenomenal. You know what that should tell you? You can trust that the Old Testament that you have is accurate and is an incredible copy of the word of God that was inspired to people like Moses and David. This is the word of God. It is, you can trust it. Now let's think about the New Testament. So we have all these manuscripts for the New Testament, actually about 5,700 New Testament manuscripts. That may not mean anything to you. Let me give you some context. So you've heard of the Greek philosopher Plato. You may have heard of Plato's Republic. So this is one of the world's most influential works of philosophy and political theory that, that people look to as somewhat authoritative. So Plato's Republic was written, in about, written about 375 B.C. Only seven copies have survived. And the earliest manuscripts we have are about A.D. 800. So think about that. Plato wrote in 375 B.C. And the, the earliest, the oldest copies we have of Plato's Republic date back to, what did I say? 800 A.D. So that's, a, that's a pretty big gap from when he wrote it in the earliest copies that we have. And there's only seven copies, seven copies. And scholars around the world look at these copies as trustworthy and authoritative. Yeah, that's what Plato wrote. Now, let's compare that with the Bible. 5,700, me, compare it with the New Testament, 5,700 New Testament manuscripts. 7 versus 5,700. That seems like a little bit different. <laughs> and many of the New Testament manuscripts that we have date back to the first, excuse me, the fourth, third, second, even first century. It is highly probable, scholars agree, that many, several of the copies that we have today of the manuscripts that we have are the very first copy of the original. That's how close these manuscripts go back to the originals. So isn't it fair that if scholars are going to look at Plato's manuscripts and go, yeah, those seem trustworthy. There's an ocean more evidence that the Bible has been transcribed and passed down to us accurately. So we can look at the New Testament and the Old Testament as trustworthy and accurate. You can trust the Bible. It was formed with God's hand over the entire process. All right, second thing I want you to see in this first big section is this. You can trust the Bible because of its power to transform. You can trust the Bible because of its power to transform, particularly the message that it contains. So as people read the Bible, and they believe in the message of the Bible, it transforms their life. I wanna read to you from uh, Greg Gilbert. He wrote a little small book called Why Trust the Bible, highly recommend it. You can get it on Amazon or uh, go to Crossway. But again, it's called Why Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert, small little book. And he says this, look, the one thing you can't do, not with any intellectual honesty anyway, is pretend that nothing happened. Clearly something did he's referring to the empty grave, by the way, clearly something did because it has created shockwaves around the world and throughout history for 2,000 years. Even just in the lives of those disciples, whatever it was that happened caused them to rearrange the very structure of their worldview. They believed that this crucified Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah of Jewish hope that he was the son of God, the vindicated sin-bearing lamb of God, the first fruits of a new creation that would begin in his own redeemed people, the king of kings who would one day save his people finally and forever and remake the world in a new birth reflective of and flowing from his own resurrection life. Because they believed these things, they rearranged their lives that they would, excuse me, uh, so that they could proclaim their beliefs abandoning careers, leaving homes, and ultimately refusing to back away from those beliefs, even as according to to tradition, they were one by one beheaded, crucified, impaled with spears, flayed, and stoned. Something happened to cause all that. As they said in the New Testament, those men, those women, Turned the world upside down. Why? Because they believed the message of the gospel. And where do we find the message of the gospel? Right here in the Bible. Think about our own church. I was talking with our high school pastor Austin earlier this week. Like, think about our own church. And this, this is um, reflective of not just the preaching here, but the way we approach small groups and things like that. We are a church that does not back away from what the Bible says. Literally, we just go verse by verse, right? So if the Bible says it, we're going to bring it up unapologetically. The past few months, we've been going through a letter that is 2,000 years old. And yet weekly, people are talking about how their lives are changed and how God is speaking to them even through a letter 2,000 years old. No, we hear all the time. What are you guys doing at Southcrest? Like it's growing. We're hearing good things. You know, we're not doing anything flashy or cool. What are we doing? Well, we're going through the Bible verse by verse. Like, that's what we're doing. And God is changing lives. Why? Because the Bible has power to transform. That speaks to the authority and the divine nature of God's word. The way it was formed should encourage you, you can trust it. And its power to transform should encourage you. One more thing on why you can trust the Bible It's this. You can trust the Bible because it properly informs. So it speaks accurately about the world around us. Man, there are, uh, I actually got frustrated in writing this sermon because there's too many things I could tell you. Too many things, too many examples to share with you. I'm gonna share with you just some simple ones. So again, if the Bible really is God's word, if it's trustworthy, then it should accurately speak about the world around us. So let me give you this example. Job 26, verse seven, says this. He hangs the earth upon nothing. He hangs the earth upon nothing. Many people, by the way, Job is the oldest book in the Bible. Many people in Job's time thought that maybe the world was carried upon the elephant of a back. excuse me, the back of an elephant, (laughs) or the back of a massive turtle. Or some believe that the mythical hero Atlas carried later on, that the mythical hero Atlas carried the earth on his shoulders. But Job, the oldest book in the Bible, Job says he hangs the earth upon nothing. Now we know gravity is at play, gravity is at work. But it's interesting, the Bible knew from the beginning, what we know now today through modern science, that yes, it's as if The earth is just out there suspended in space. God knows what he's talking about. In Job chapter 38, verse 16, Job 38, verse 16, he says, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? There was a time that scholars, uh, those who did not believe in Christ, scoffed at at that verse of Clearly, there aren't springs in the bottom of the sea. It's all salt water. Clearly, the Bible doesn't know what it's talking about. Well, underwater exploration in the past 40 or so years has discovered that, yes, in some places at the very depths of the ocean, there are freshwater springs pouring out water into the ocean. Once again, even the oldest book in the Bible, God knew what he was talking about. That, yes, because he made the world, he would know there are springs at the bottom of the ocean. The Bible accurately informs. Give you one more example. You guys remember Pilate in the Bible? Part of uh, Jesus' trial, his flogging, his crucifixion, major character, major character, a true character, true person in the Bible. And for a long time, archaeology couldn't find anything referring to Pilate. So some people began to say, man, this is a big person in the Bible. He plays an important role. Surely, if he was real, there would be something in archaeology that tells us that this man existed. Well, in 1961, a group of uh, Israelites and a group group from Israel and a group from um, Italy were doing some digging around Caesarea Maritime. And lo and behold, they found a stone. We're going to put this picture up on the screen. There it is. This is some call it the Pilate stone. And sure enough, this stone shows us that Pilate existed. You know why? Because it says, I you can't read that. Maybe I can't read it really. It's all difficult on the screen. But they've discovered that it says, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. So just like the Bible says, this man existed. So for Almost two thousand years. There's so many people wondering. Ah, was he a real person? Did he really exist? Can we trust the Bible? Yes, you can trust the Bible. Over and over again, as scientists dig up things, it only confirms that this is the word of God, and you can trust it. You can trust the Bible. So, why? Because of the way it was formed, because of its power to transform, and because it properly informs. Okay. That was the big first section. Now quickly, the second section. Okay. We talked about why you can trust the Bible. Again, very quick overview. Second, let's talk about some things to know when you read the Bible. My wife and I were having a great conversation this week, and I was planning on talking about how to study the Bible. But I thought Lauren brought up a great point that the reality is there are lots of ways to read and study the Bible. The point is that you read and study the Bible. Amen? Like, I, I, I want to encourage you and give you, whether you look up the SOAP method or the HEAR method or get a study Bible that has some methods of study and, or find a, um, a reading plan, I highly recommend having a reading plan pre-deciding what you're going to read. But the point is there are lots of great ways to read the Bible. You just need to read it. You need to get in God's Word. So rather than giving you a bunch of how-tos, I want to give you just some things to remember when you study the Bible. Here's the first one. Reading the Bible doesn't affect your union with Christ, but it does affect your communion with Christ. I'm gonna say that again and unpack it. Reading the Bible doesn't affect your union with Christ, but it does affect your communion with Christ. So I'm gonna read a, a verse, a few verses from Ephesians to explain this a little bit, this first part thinking about the union of Christ, listen to the words from, it'll be on the screen, Ephesians chapter two, verses four through seven. "'But God, who is rich in mercy, "'because of his great love that he had for us, "'made us alive with Christ, "'even though we were dead in our trespasses. "'You are saved by grace. "'He also raised us up with him and seated us with him "'in the heavens in Christ Jesus.'" so that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Listen, if you have been saved by grace through faith, if you know Jesus, then you are forever eternally secure in Christ. You are a child of God who is loved and forgiven and has hope in Jesus Christ. That's who you are on your best days, and on your worst days, you are secure in Christ. So whether or not you read the Bible today doesn't change that. And you know what? Praise God. Because there are days, don't tell Pastor David, there's some days I don't read my Bible. And before you judge, there are some days you don't read the Bible It doesn't affect your union with Christ, but it does affect your communion with Christ. Listen to this verse. Again, it'll be on the screen. Uh, Psalm 119, verses 81 through 83. He says, I long for your salvation. I put my hope in your word. My eyes grow weary for what you have promised. I ask, when will you comfort me? Though I have become like a wineskin, dried by smoke, I do not forget your statutes. What I want to show you there. Do you see that the psalmist is holding in both hands? God, I long for your comfort, comfort and so I am going to go to your word. That God's word brings God's comfort. That's what I mean by communion. If you want to daily experience and and revel in and enjoy sweet fellowship communion with God, the best way to do that is to read your Bible. The best way to grow and. and And experiencing God's comfort is to read your Bible. Let me read another verse. This is from Psalm 119, verses 129 through 136. Your decrees are wondrous, therefore I obey them. The revelation of your words brings light and gives understanding to the inexperienced. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commands. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your practice toward those who love your name. Make my steps steady through your promise. Don't let any sin dominate me. Redeem me from human oppression and I will keep your precepts. Make your face shine on your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes pour out streams of tears because people do not follow your instruction. Again, this idea of God's face shining on you. So if you're a child of God, you're unified with Christ, in union with Christ. His face always shines on you. But your experience of that gets heightened as you study God's word. Your, maybe a better way to say it, is your awareness of God's face shining on you, of your relationship with him, of his wondrous love and the, the majesty of his word. It increases as you study God's word. So again, reading the Bible doesn't affect your union. It affects your communion with Christ. Almost every time, that talk with somebody like, man, God feels far away. I'm not hearing from him. Most of the time when I ask somebody, hey, well, hey, how's your time in the word going? Are you spending time in the Bible? Most of the time it's a no or it's like, ah, oh, I just every now and then I do. You've got to get in where it's God's word consistently. Yeah, I think about something Terry Cobble said at the beginning of the Bible recap. Some of you are using that. as a great resource uh, in how to study the Bible and she kind of leads you through uh, the Bible front to back. But I'm paraphrasing. She says, remember the Bible is it's relational. God speaks to us, This conversation. So think about when you go and hang out with your spouse or your best friend, you don't always leave that conversation and go, all right, hmm, what did I get out of that? What did I learn from that conversation? Now, those are good questions to ask, but really when you spend time with your best friend, you just enjoy being in their presence. See, it's, it's about communion. It's about relationship. You don't always have to get something out of the Bible. It's just about being in the presence of God. All right, number two, things to think about when you're reading the Bible. Number two, you can understand the Bible. You can. So everybody look at me real quick. You look up here. You can do it. I'll try not to look too ugly, okay? Don't ever tell somebody, I don't read the Bible because it doesn't make sense. I can't understand it. That's a bad excuse. Because you know what you say, you're saying when you say that? You're saying God is not a good communicator. You're saying God is not a good communicator. It's kind of like when I'm up here sometimes, like, oh, how do I say this? That's me struggling because I could be a better communicator. God is perfect. He knows how to communicate. So when you say, I don't understand it, don't, don't call God a bad communicator. Listen to the words of Psalm 119, verse 25. He says, my life is down in the dust. Give me life through your word. I told you about my life and you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Help me understand the meaning of your precepts so that I can meditate on your wonders. I am weary from grief. Strengthen me through your word. Then in verse 34, he says, help me understand your instruction and I will obey it and follow it with all my heart. And the biggest reason I know that you can understand God's word, because the Holy Spirit helps you understand God's word. (laughs) But what do I do when I can't understand it? Because there are times where you read it. just like Peter saying, hey, I was reading Paul and some of his stuff is hard to understand. (laughs) No, there's a difference in hard to understand and can't understand, right? There are things that are hard to understand, but it doesn't mean you can't understand it because God's spirit will help you. So what should you do when you can't understand things in the Bible? Number one, keep digging. Put some sweat in. Too so many of us who read God's word, we're like, "It doesn't make sense. So I just quit. I'm gonna play video games, right? Or I'm gonna quit and go talk to somebody else. No, don't quit the conversation. Don't quit reading God's word just when it gets difficult. So dig. Another thing I would tell you if you're struggling to understand it is consider the context. Consider the context. Most of the time, speaking for myself, most of the time when I'm struggling to understand what God means if I'll consider the literary context, so I don't have to go on Google and do some massive history search, consider the context of the Bible, the words here, it helps me understand it. Consider the context. Another thing I would tell you is remember the hero. I know this isn't in your notes, but you guys are tough. Remember the hero. If you try to make the Bible all about you when you read it, you will be confused because the Bible isn't about you primarily, it's about who? It's about God, yeah. And yes, it does teach us, but it's primarily a book revealing who God is. So remember, he's the hero, not you. And then again, I would just tell you, when you get stuck, ask God for help. Ask him to show you, God, what does this mean? And maybe it means you ask him that and you put your Bible down and you go about your day and you come back tomorrow and you read the same verse again. Lord, would you give me insight? Would you give me wisdom? Would you show me? Ask him for help because you can understand the Bible. All right, number three quickly is this. The more you read the Bible, the more you'll love the Bible. The more you read the Bible, the more you'll love the Bible. So remember, the goal is that we love God. We don't worship the Bible the goal, we worship God and we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but also it's good, as appropriate to say, God, I love your word. And don't don't you wanna be that kind of person? Don't you wanna be the kind of person that says, I, I genuinely love the Bible. There are times it's hard to read. There's times that I find myself kind of reluctant, but, but ultimately in my gut, yes, I love the Bible. That's one of my favorite things about this church is that from the, we, we, uh, we a little taught age, <laughs> we teach kiddos the value of God's word and to love God's word, because as you love God's word, you learn to love God. Think about this. Psalm 119, Psalm 1, I believe written by the same person, King David. Psalm 119 is full of the author saying, hey, by the way, If you have your Bible, don't put your Bible up because I have a little homework for you, okay? That's right. I see you guys trying to get out of here early. Just kidding. (laughs) Psalm 119, Psalm 1. Psalm 119 is full of examples of the the author saying, I love your word. It's like honey on my mouth. I just can't get enough of it. God, I want to read your word more. How, how How did he get like that? Well, Psalm 1 says, I meditate on your word day and night. His this person's delight is in the law of the Lord. So he delights in it, he meditates on it. And by Psalm 119, is saying, I love it. I can't get enough of it. It's like honey on my mouth. I just want more. If you wanna to learn to love the Bible, you gotta read it. That reluctance that you feel. I just don't feel like it. I don't, I don't have the desire like other people do. Those people got that desire by doing the work up front. Think about the first time, you you went to the gym or tried a new sport or tried a new food. The first time you're kind of like, Egh. and once you get some reps in it, you're like, hey, I kind of enjoy this, I kind of like this. My little girl just the other day said, Daddy, I'm learning to eat all my food. Amen. She was reluctant, but the more she's been forced to do it, she's learning to love it. The more you read the Bible, the more you'll love the Bible. Love starts with lingering, right? What, what are new couples when, when they first meet each other? They're kind of, they're getting to know each other. They just kind of linger. I think about one of my best friends, Garrett, when he first met, uh, who's now his wife, Chelsea. We were gonna hang out as a couple, Lauren and I, and them two for a few minutes after church. And they lingered so long, it just got weird. So Lauren and I just left and they hung out in the church offices, super awkward. But love started with lingering, just talking, having conversation. Your love for God and your love for God's word starts with lingering in conversation right here right here. All right. How do we want to close this out? I'm glad you asked. First thing, if you've never received the gift of salvation that this book talks about from literally cover to cover, man, what, a, what an opportunity today to say yes to Jesus. See, He lived a perfect life, died on the cross for your sins. Bearing your shame, your guilt, your condemnation, three days later rose again. He did that as a gift of salvation to you. All you have to do is receive it. And again, I said this last week. Warn you that when you receive Jesus into your life, you receive that free gift of salvation. He will come in your life and do some rearranging, a lot of rearranging until you're with him in heaven. It'll be the best thing that ever happened to you. Man, I want to encourage you, challenge you to receive that free gift of salvation. That's what the Bible's about. If you do know Jesus, as we close, I want you to do this. Like literally, I would love for you to do this right now. Turn to Psalm 119, chapter 119. So 119. And I want you to take a minute to pray the the words of verses nine through 16. So 119, chapter 119. And I want you to pray the verses the words of verses nine through 16. If something doesn't make sense in this moment, don't stress about it. You can keep reading and praying the other verses that are right there or ask God to help you. That's a good idea. We just talked about that. I want you to pray the verses, verses nine through 16. Saying, God, here's my heart. Would you would you teach me to love your Bible? And would you teach me to hear from you as I study your word? If you were encouraged by today's message, subscribe and rate us wherever you stream your podcasts. To learn more about the venue at Southcrest, visit us online at southcrest.org or on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Southcrest Baptist Church.